You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Hey, y'all. So there's a little typo in the bulletin tonight. So it's actually Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Um, So if y'all want to pull out your phones and look that up, it should be up there too, but I'll give y'all a second if y'all want to do that. Okay. So Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This semester in RUF, we have been talking about relationships in general. I've been trying to say to you every single week that uh, it is the Bible's thesis, it's the Bible's claim that you were designed by God to be loved by God, and then to learn how to love other people. To learn how to love God, to learn how to love yourself, to learn how to love other people, and to learn how to love the world. And so we've been spending, I don't know, however many weeks now talking about how to love other people. And this is kind of the last week we're going to do this. This is our second to last large group. Our last one is right here next week. We'll finish it up by talking about how you relate to the world. But uh, I thought it would be important for us to at least spend one night on, on talking about marriage. What is marriage? And I know, man, this is such a this is such a hot topic, hot kind of button issue, and there's so many questions that surround it. You've got big cultural questions. Uh, what about gay marriage? How should Christians think about that? You've got big Bible questions like, uh, what does that word submit mean? Husband is head of the wife? What does that mean? So you've got big Bible questions, uh, but you also have big personal questions. You've got personal Pain. I know a lot of you have come from kind of you've you've witnessed and seen bad or broken marriages, and so you have sort of your own sort of pain when it comes to this subject. A lot of you have uh, fear when it comes to this subject: uh, fear of commitment, fear of what if you marry the wrong person, fear of how will how will will marriage jeopardize my career. Uh, you may have fear on the other side. What I, I so desperately want to be married. What I'm afraid that I'm going to be alone, and so. There's just so much kind of loaded into this one subject, and we've only got one night we're going to talk about it, so I can't say everything, but I'm not going to throw away my shot. And um, 
So I, I'm not going to address the big cultural stuff. I'm not going to even address the big Bible stuff. I'm going to post some uh, resources for that on the Facebook page for you tonight. Uh, maybe I'll do it either tonight or tomorrow. I'm going to post some resources. Always feel free to text me, call me, get together with me. I'd love to talk to you about that kind of stuff. Um, can't say everything. Really, all I want to do tonight is do the, I just want to do the big 30,000-foot view of the Bible's vision of what marriage is. And I think I can boil that down for you in three simple, easy-to-remember points, and it is this. Here's what I think the Bible basically says about marriage. Number one, marriage is amazing. Number two, marriage is terrible. And number three, marriage is amazing. It's my favorite outline I've ever come up with. (laughs) Marriage is amazing. Marriage is terrible. Marriage is amazing. So let's talk about how marriage is amazing. Number one. How's marriage amazing? Well, um, I don't have the passage in front of me, so i got to look on my little thing. Look at verse 31 if you have it on your phone or nowhere. Verse 31 says this. Um, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We actually talked about this verse last week. This is a quote from Genesis 2, which is talking about how God set up and designed marriage to function. And that language of somebody leaving their family and then holding fast to their spouse, that's, New Testament scholars say that that is covenantal language. To leave your previous family structure and then to hold fast, or some of the translations say cleave. So you leave and you cleave. That is all covenantal language, and that sort of gets at what the heart of what marriage is. But of course raises this question, what in the world does that mean? Covenant. We don't even really use that word in our culture that much anymore. So people have said, well, the best way to understand what a covenant is is to compare it to what a contract is. It's like, okay, let's try it. What, what is a contract? Well, I have a contractual relationship with AT&T. They provide service for my phone. I pay them a service every month. They give me, I pay them money every, every month. They give me service. And this is, a, this is our agreement. This is our contract, right? And of course, if I fail to pay for those monthly installments, if I violate the terms of our agreement, they can fine me or they can punish me and break the contract, right? And I can break the contract too. If, if there's a better company that comes along that offers a better deal and a, and a better service, I can get out of my contract with AT&T and join somebody else. Of course, it, they, it might, there might be some financial penalties, there may be some headache involved, but if a better option comes along, I can upgrade. And so some people have said that's kind of like what uh, marriage is like. It's a contract. But that's not the understanding of what a covenant is, biblically. Biblically, a covenant is not a contract. A contract is loyalty to an agreement. And if you don't feel to live, if you fail to live up to your terms of the agreement, then I can get out. And if something better comes along for me and, I, and I've kind of found a better option, then I can get out of the contract and I can upgrade. And it might cost me some headache and some financial pain, but I can get out of that. That's what a contract is. Contract is loyalty to an agreement as long as both parties like the agreement. A covenant, though, is not loyalty to an agreement. A covenant is loyalty to the person. This is why verse 31 says you hold fast to each other. Uh, A covenant basically is this. A marriage covenant is you making a public and permanent promise 
to exclusively, exclusively love that other person. A public, permanent promise to exclusively love the other person. Uh, of course, this is why marriage is, so, is fundamentally different from dating. People think marriage is sort of like, just kind of like the next step. Like you, you date and then marriage is like the upgraded version of dating. It's not. They're two different species. They're two different things altogether. Marriage is, is a covenant that in some ways has no reference point to your feelings at all. I mean, if you've ever, paid, if you've ever been to a wedding and you've paid attention to the vows that the, the husband and wife make when they get up in front of everybody. There they are, they're in front. I've officiated a lot of weddings. And uh, the, they turn and they face each other. You've got the whole congregation out there. And they make these vows. And they don't even talk about their present feelings. They talk about the future. They say, I, will, I promise to, I will love you for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, uh, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. They're saying, I'm setting a date in the future I'm putting it on my calendar, and when that day comes, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of how I feel, I promise to be loving towards you, to be faithful to you, to be unselfish towards you. There's no really even reference point to your feelings. It's, it's, a, it's not a present declaration of your feelings of love. It is a future promise of the actions of love, for better or for worse. We're literally promising I know that worse is coming, and when that day comes, I will love you then. And, and this is why this is why this is what makes marriage amazing. Is because when you know that somebody else is committing themselves to you like that until they die, you are finally safe. You're finally free. You're finally free to be yourself. That can never work in dating. That can never work if you just move in with each other. As Tim Keller says, when you're dating or if you just move in with, your, with each other, your relationship is always basically marketing and promotion. You're, you're always feeling like, I, I've got I've to be on. I've, I've got to be, uh, I, I, this has to be working. We've got to be jiving. And, there's, and if, there's always this fear, right? If the chemistry gets off, if we get in a big blow-up fight, this thing could fall apart. In marriage, you know Chemistry can be off. We can get in blow-up fights. I, we can really hurt each other. And we have covenanted. We have glued ourselves to each other, for better or for worse. You are finally free. You're finally secure. You're finally, like, you can exhale and be yourself, finally. That's why marriage is amazing. But that's not the whole story. Point number two. Marriage is terrible, Here's where I get this from. If, if, if you look at verse 25, let me pull it up. Verse 25 through 27 says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He is comparing husbands loving their wives to the way that Jesus loves you when you marry him. Meaning, when you marry Jesus, as it were, when Jesus comes into your life and begins to love you, he sanctifies you. He cleanses you. He transforms you. He changes you. That's what it's saying. 
One of the purposes of marriage is for you to be changed. It's for you to be sanctified through the process of what marriage is. But guess what the big assumption is underneath that? You are going to marry somebody who desperately needs to be changed. And, newsflash, your spouse is marrying somebody who desperately needs to be changed. So, this is why marriage is terrible, because you've decided to bind yourself apart from any condition to stick to somebody who is incomplete, who desperately needs to be changed, who is flawed, who is selfish, who is, as the Bible says, a sinner. So, uh, there was this New York article, there's a New York Times article that came out in 2016 titled, You Always Marry the Wrong Person. And uh, it was the most read article in the year 2016 by like a long shot. If you think about what happened in 2016, there was Brexit, you had the presidential election, you had the uh, refugee crisis, all that was in 2016. This was the most read article, You Always Marry the Wrong Person. It was written by, this, by an atheist named Alain de Baton. I had to have said that right. And um, <laughs> here's the first paragraph of the article. I love this. He says, it's one of the things we are most afraid might happen to us. It's one of the things we're most afraid that might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser and more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would be, and how are you crazy? <laughs> Which, by the way, I think would be a great question for your not-a-date this Friday, is not, are you crazy, but like, what type of crazy are you? <laughs> but you see what he's saying, and he keeps going. He goes on and he says, he says, we need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and it points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. There can be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. Choose, listen to this sentence. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. Does that sound a little bleak? He's, you see what he's saying? He's saying you are going to marry somebody with baggage, somebody that's crazy, somebody that needs to be changed, somebody with tons of flaws. And so when you sign up for marriage... You're signing up for some form of suffering. With that person, do you want that type of suffering or this person with that type of suffering? But you're going to get suffering either way. In fact, I came across this this week. Chris Rock has this hilarious little bit. I'm going to read it to you. I, I, I edited it a little bit. Um, <laughs> for, the, for the sake of the children out here. But here's what he says. He says, marriage, quote, marriage is so tough, Nelson Mandela got a divorce. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in a South African prison. He got beaten and tortured every day for 27 years and did it with no problem. Made to do hard labor in 100 degree South African heat for 27 years and did it with no problem. He got out of jail after 27 years of torture. He spent six months with his wife and said, I can't take this no more. <laughs> you got to hear him do it if you can handle some other words. But here's the thing. 
What do you think happens when you take one flawed, selfish, sinful person and you glue them to another flawed, sinful, selfish person? You don't get rainbows and sparkles and sunshine. You get blood and guts and tears. <laughs> now, I'm being, I'm, of course, I'm being a little over the top here, but my, my point is I am trying to intentionally deconstruct your view of marriage because our culture, and especially Christians have converted and perverted marriage into an idol. We have turned it into this thing that we are looking to, to be the thing. We've placed such impossibly high expectations on marriage to be the thing that can fulfill us and fix us. And here's the honest truth. It can't. It just can't. So I want to talk about those two things for a second. Marriage can't fulfill you and marriage can't fix you. Number one, marriage cannot fulfill you. So what our culture has done, instead of saying one of the purposes of marriage is deep character change in me, we have said, no, the purpose of marriage is deep personal fulfillment in me. If I get married, when I get married, I will finally be happy. I will finally feel whole. And, you know, like Jerry Maguire has taught us this. You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I know this is an old movie, but you've seen it. When Tom Cruise looks at the girl and he says, you complete me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am incomplete. I am lacking. And you, when you come in, you fill the void. You make me whole. You complete me. No human can do that. It's just a lie. In fact, uh, th- this is why we feel such enormous pressure to find, like, the perfect compatible soulmate. I watched an eHarmony ad this week, <laughs> against my own will, but I watched an eHarmony ad that it was, it was a guy, he was in the movie theater, so it felt like, from my vantage point, like, it was this guy sitting in the movie theater, and everybody around him, these couples, cuddling up, holding, he's sitting there by himself, eating popcorn, depressed, and he goes home, and he's doing laundry by himself, depressed, and so he gets on the computer, and he gets on eHarmony, and he, and he finds this perfectly tailored human that, that is crafted to all of his personality needs and all of his internal needs, and he goes on a date with her, and guess what? He's happy at the end of the commercial. He's with her in the theater. It's so beautiful. <laughs> But the, but the story is, and, the, and the, the, the message is, is that when you get married, you'll be happy. You'll finally be happy. You're single and you're alone and you're depressed, I know. But if you get married, all of your deepest needs will be satisfied. This is why, this is why we, find this, we have all this pressure to find the perfect compatible soulmate. One of the reasons why, number one, people are getting married later and later in life, why, number two, um, fewer and fewer people are getting married, and why, number three, uh, divorce is so high, is because that person doesn't exist. The perfectly tailored, compatible soulmate that is designed just for you is not a thing. Marriage cannot fulfill you. Uh, if you come into marriage as a flawed and sinful and selfish person and your spouse comes into marriage as a flawed and selfish and sinful person, that means y'all are not compatible. Marriage does not begin with compatibility. Marriage can't fulfill you. Number two, marriage can't fix you. If you're, because there's lots of different reasons for this, but, but everybody moves into adulthood with what I would call character de- defects. 
deficiencies, limitations, wounds, baggage. We all come into adulthood with those things, and so for most of us, we have this intense longing to be fixed for somebody to, 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 we feel broken and we want somebody to fix us. And so we have looked to marriage to be the thing that fixes us. So I think deep down for a lot of us, you say, well, when I get married, I'll be having regular sex. So that's going to fix the porn addiction. Like lust will go away when I get married. Or you'll think, well, when I get married, I will, I will always be prized and pursued by my husband and I, I, will, I will not feel lonely again. And here's the, here's the sad reality is that no human being has the capacity to fix you. And that's the, number one mer- that, that's the number one mistake that people make, and they don't even realize that they're making it, but they go into marriage with all of these hopes and expectations that finally this is the person that's going to fix me. And guess what? All the expectations are on them. You're the person that's going to fix them. John Cox, who's a Christian psychologist, I've mentioned him a number of times this semester, he says, this is the phenomenon called two ticks and no dog. <laughs> You have two parasites stuck to each other trying to suck life from the other and there's nothing, there's no life to be sucked from. So you're just two parasites stuck on two ticks, no dog. Marriage cannot fulfill you. It cannot fix you. If that is true, then I want to make two quick applications before we think about how marriage is amazing. Application number one. This means being single is perfectly okay. The Bible does not idolize marriage in the way that Christians have. In fact, if you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it refers to singleness as a gift. That it is God's goodness to you to be single. Which uh, I think is is really important for you to hear because if you are single, this means that you are not lesser than. You are not inferior. Think about this. The one person who perfectly embodied what it meant to be human, Jesus, <laughs> was single. The one person who perfectly embodied the human experience, he himself was single. All of your needs for intimacy cannot be met in marriage. This is why uh, you need community. This is why the Bible says you need community. Your community, your Intimacy needs are not intended to solely be fixed and, 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 and uh, resolved in the context of marriage. This is why for Christians, marriage is optional, but being a part of the church is not. As a Christian, marriage is optional. Take it or leave it. Get married, it's awesome. Don't get married, awesome. But being involved in a community of the body of Christ, not optional, because you were designed for community, not necessarily for marriage. So singleness is okay. And number two, I'll say this, application number two, This means um, I think you should stop looking for the one. And if you're interested in getting married, start looking for someone. And here's what I mean by that. (laughs) Christians have bought into this weird idea that there's this weird mystical soulmate out there somewhere designed just for you. And so that creates all this panic and anxiety of like, who are they? How do I know where they are? How can I find them? What if I marry somebody and it's not the right person? What if my real soulmate is over there? And so Christians have also come up with this bizarro way of figuring out who the soulmate is. And so Christians have said, well, the way that you will find out who the soulmate is, is you'll just know. (laughs) You'll just know. Which 
I don't really know what that means, but it, I think it means that you're going to have this weird mystical feeling that gives you the confidence that this is the one. Do you know how you'll know if, who the one is? You know how I knew that Catherine was the one? Here's how I knew. It's when we were at our wedding, and she said, I do. <laughs> When she said, I will marry this guy, she's the one. She's the one. <laughs> so uh, this means that there is, uh, no, it, th- there is nobody out there that you are perfectly compatible with. In fact, I read this the other day, and I thought this was so helpful. It said, compatibility is the achievement of love. It cannot be its precondition. Compatibility is the achievement of love. Love is a skill. Love is a labor that as you work and as you work and as you labor to learn how to love somebody, compatibility is the fruit of that. Compatibility is the achievement of that. It's the destination. It's not the starting point, which means as you're dating people and as you're going on not a dates and talking to people and getting to know people and as guys are signing up for not a date, then... <laughs> What this means you should be looking for, this is what Kathy Keller says, you should be looking for not a finished statue, but a good block of marble. Don't look for a finished statue, but a good block of marble. Do you see glimpses in the person that you're interested in? Do you see glimpses of character and of empathy and of kindness and of self-awareness and and, and ability to um, move towards and understand people? Do you see those sorts of character traits? Look for a good piece of marble, not, not a finished statue. So there is no one out there for you, but there are a lot of some ones. So marriage is, uh, marriage is amazing, but it's terrible. But it's amazing. Let's talk about why it's amazing. Last thing. Uh, look at verse 32. Verse 32 says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's been talking about the love between a husband and a wife, and he says, you know what? Actually, I'm talking about how Jesus loves the church, and this is a mystery. But it's crazy. Do you know what he just said? He just said that marriage is a reenactment of what the gospel is. Marriage is a living and breathing and visible demonstration of what it looks like for God to love you. That's what marriage is. Paul says, uh, this, is, this, was basically, this is why love in marriage, this is why marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract because this is how God loves you. His love for you is covenantal. His love for you is what is patterning, you know, marriage is patterned after his love for you. If God loves you covenantally, not contractually. This means that God has chosen to bind himself to you in love apart from any condition. This means that he loves you when you're at RUF, and he loves you when you're praying, and he loves you when you're reading the Bible, and he loves you when you're on mission trips. And guess what? He also loves you when you're having sex with your boyfriend, and he loves you when you're looking at porn, and he loves you when somebody's having to pull your hair back because you're hugging the toilet. He loves you then. His love is a covenantal, always and forever, never stopping sort of love. And that love is, is played out in marriage. Here's the question. How do you get the truth of that from your head to your heart? 
I mean, you've, you've, you feel that gap, right? I've heard you talk about this. I've talked about this in, in terms of like, how do, I, how do I take what I know to be true and how do I have it resonate in my gut? How can I feel it? You know how you do that? Through relationally experiencing what you know to be true. You, you're cognitively learning right the second that God loves you. You're putting it in your head. I'm telling you, God loves you. Head. But... That can't go from your head to your heart until you experience it in the context of a relationship, in, in the context of a friendship. Here's what I mean by this. I, I never understood what grace and forgiveness was really until I got married. Yes, I believed it before. I, I, I would have answered the test right if you had given me a test. What is grace? What is forgiveness? But there was a time early on in our marriage where I did something to Catherine and I really hurt her. And... She was crying, and she was upset, and it was, it was 100% my fault. There was, I had no one else to blame. I had no excuses. I just willfully, sinfully hurt her. And through her tears, she looked at me, and she said, I love you, and I forgive you. And that was kind of like when this light bulb went on for me of like, that's what grace is. That's what love is. And I got to experience it. It was displayed in a concrete form. I got to look at somebody's face and to see the tears of this person I hurt, and it was all my fault. And for them to respond, not with punishment, but with forgiveness. And it was like, oh, that's what it's like for God to love me. Relationally experiencing what you know to be true, that's how it gets from your head to your heart. And you don't have to have marriage to do that. You can do that in the context of any friendship. This is why marriage is friendship. It's just like friendship on steroids. What makes marriage amazing is that you have a deep friend and a deep companion that walks through life with you and is constantly showing you Jesus, constantly pointing you to Jesus. In fact, this is what makes marriage amazing. Marriage is amazing not because it can fulfill you, but because it is pointing you to the one who can't. Marriage is amazing, not because it is the thing that fulfills you, but it's like a giant arrow constantly pointing you to the one who can. It's pointing you back to Jesus. Because the gospel is, I mean, marriage is patterned after the gospel. But here's the other thing. Here's the last thing I'll say. The gospel is also the power that you need in order to even do marriage in the first place, I think. Because the real question is, how can you continue to love and to love and to give and to give when your spouse is hard to love and when your spouse goes through seasons of their life where they're really giving you nothing back, giving you no love in return? Why would you continue to love and continue to love and continue to love and continue to love when you're getting nothing? What would compel anyone to do that? Well, I heard Tim Keller use this analogy talking about how people donate to charities He says, somebody can make a big gift to a charity or to a ministry or a church or whatever only if they've got a pretty steady stream of income coming in from somewhere else. If if there's a big steady stream of income coming over here, then I I can afford to give generously over here uh, because money is coming in. If, If there's no money coming in, if I don't have this income supply pouring in, then it's too costly. I can't, I can't afford to give. So in the same way, you can give a lot of love if if you're getting a lot of love. And so the question is, where are you going to get a resource for that amount of love so strong that you would be able to continue to give even if you're getting nothing back? Uh, I want to read you one more 
quote from that article, You Always Marry the Wrong Person, by Alain de Baton. He says this, quote, We mustn't abandon our spouse. Only the founding romantic idea that a perfect being exists who can meet all of our needs and satisfy our every yearning. He says, don't get rid of your spouse. Just get rid of the idea that there is not a perfect being out there that exists that can meet all of your needs. I'll say he's half right. Yes, he is right that there is no person out there that can meet all of your needs and satisfy all of your deepest longings, and you will be free when you release people of the burden of that. But... There is a perfect being out there that does exist, and he will meet all of your longings, and he will meet all of your deepest needs. You know, on the cross, when, when Jesus looks at his people and he sees them betraying him and denying him and forsaking him, he's getting nothing out of that relationship, and you know what he did? He stayed. He stayed on the cross out of love for his bride. He gave himself for us. He loved us not because we're lovely, but he loved us in order to make us lovely. And, and if God's love for you is a reality to you, if that is the steady stream of love into your own soul, then you can give and you can give and you can love not just your spouse, but you can love anybody with the overflow of that love. But if your whole sense of self and your whole being is wrapped up in the love of your spouse back towards you and they stop loving you, they stop acting loving towards you, they start being somebody that's hard to love, which they will, remember point two, then if that happens, you collapse and you fall apart. But if the love, if the love need is being met in Jesus, you can love when it's hard. You can love for better or for poor. You can love for richer or, or poor. You can love for better or for worse. You can love till death do you part. Marriage is amazing. Marriage is terrible. It's hard, but it's amazing. Points you to Jesus, and he's the one that can meet your needs. Let me pray. Father, thank you that um, you're honest enough with us in the scriptures to, to help us to recalibrate our expectations and to know that marriage can't fulfill us, it can't fix us. But thank you that it points us to the one who can. Thank you that it points us back to you. And I pray that even now, even for most of us in this room who aren't married, that we would begin to find the deepest source of our intimacy needs met in Jesus alone. That we would be able to love and to give and to give of ourselves sacrificially, maybe even when we're not getting it in return. Thank you that you love us covenantally. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.